podcast with me, Emily Einelander. And me, Karen Pulaski. We're mapping the frontier between traditional and indie publishing. Today, our guest is Rachel Doan, who is here to talk about a study about how to make future publishing distribution practices forward-thinking, sustainable, eco-friendly, and profitable. The study was a partnership between Portland State University's publishing department, surprise, <laughs> PubWest, and the Independent Book Publishers Association, and was authored by Rachel Doan, Rebecca Gordon, Megan Jessup, Stephanie Johnson Lawson, Alexa Schmidt, Riley Warner, Lori Mar Del Rio, Sarah Bradley, Alexandra Burns, Ivory Fields, Alexander Halbrook, Jill Bowen, Catherine Blitch, Amanda Hines, Megan Bader Bongolin, Alexandra Miguel, and Francis Fragella. It was supervised by Dr. Rachel Norda. Rachel Down Kubias is currently a freelancing publishing professional with focuses on writing, design, marketing, and project management, basically a little bit of everything. They are set to graduate with their MA in book publishing and comic studies certificate from PSU this coming June. They love exploring new topics and skills, as well as spending time with their menagerie of a family. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're really excited to have you here to talk about this today um, with the dire situation we're in with climate change. I think a lot of people in publishing uh, have trouble processing our carbon footprint and uh, maybe can't see alternative ways of doing things. So I think this is really important work. So thank you. Yeah, no, it was just uh, for the carbon neutral aspect of the research. It was just astounding to read the data. Of, and there's there's so many things that aren't in the publishing quarterly article that were in the longer version. And even in that too, we had to cut so much data that's to be found, honestly, like in terms of basically, I think by 2050, if the, um, if loggers continue at the pace that they do, even with the, you know, cut one and plant one practice, over half, if not 75% of America's forests will all be one type of tree, um, which if you, which, to some people like listening, this might be like, oh, whatever, big deal. But it for the biodiversity aspect and for if, for instance, like I know for elms, they had the Dutch elm disease, right? So if there's a kind of mutagen or something that attacks this type of tree, then you're looking at almost 75% of trees being affected by 2050, right? If it's such a thing were to develop, which obviously with the pandemic, we can't predict, you know, let alone for us, let alone for trees, right? Um, so there's just so much statistical data that just shows that whatever we're doing now is just not sustainable in terms of printing, both currently in the U.S. and overseas. Yeah, that's what happens with monoculture. Like That's the, the big risk of it is that if one thing bad happens to one, then it could happen to everybody and pass really, really quickly. So for sure. Okay, Rachel, could you start by telling us the research questions you used to guide the study and what your methods of answering those questions were? So the questions were, what needs to be done to make book printing truly carbon neutral by 2050? And then the next one was, as consumer buying habits further migrate from retail to online, what does efficient and cost-effective delivery of print books to readers look like going forward? A third one was, although COVID-19 did not create the book industry supply chain problems, it certainly exasperated them. 
what chinks in the book industry's armor were most exposed due to the COVID-19 pandemic? The fourth question, what's stopping the industry from embracing print on demand as the preferred means for printing non-illustrated black and white trade books? And then fifth, how can the book industry decrease the return rates for books sold in trade channels from an average of 30% to an average of 15% or less? And then um, can you talk a little about your methodology for researching this? Yeah, so because we kind of split it up between multiple like groups of people, the very, the methods marry, but a lot of it was literature review. We did some surveys, some people did interviews or they just basically did close readings of already compiled interviews. Um, And just a lot of, we we talked a lot to PubWest and IBPA's board members and stuff to really kind of get their idea of what the lay of the land was and what they had been hearing from their members and what some of the things for them they thought were plaguing the industry and why. And do they collect a lot of data or was it mostly like anecdotal stories from people who are in their organizations? Um, you know, for some of them, they had, it depended on the question and what kind of information we were asking about. Like for instance, for returns, Michelle Cobb has some really great information. Um, and so does Angel Boyle, who are both heads of their respective organizations. Mm-hmm. So they had like really great stats on that. And even for the carbon neutral aspect, um, I talked to Carla, Carla Olson, who is the head of publishing for Patagonia and, um, and Sonia Moore, uh, who is their printer or the head of their printing distribution. And so when we talked to them in depth, you know, they had some really great numbers and they're also compiling their own articles and sources right now, I think, as we speak. Um, so they had some good polls, but in some of the more general conversations, I think we as an overall group had with IPA and PubWest, it could vary a little bit if it was just like, this is what we're hearing through the grapevine to yes, here is this statistical number, but everything that is actually in the articles ha- was verified and we checked that information and everything. It wasn't just like hearsay, you know, oh, of sure. like, you know, we just like, oh, someone said this, let's quote it, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It matches with the evidence. Let's yes. see what they think. So let's start with the first question. And this was the section you wrote, right? Yeah, this is the section. I, I mean, me and Riley Warner and Dr. Rachel Norner, we edited everything down from, I think originally from like, it was like 40 pages altogether down to what we have for QQR or for QRQ, which is, I think, overall, um, 30 pages or something like that. So every pa- basically, I think every article from 10 pages to two, two or three. So wow. yeah, it was a lot of, it was a lot of information to crunch, but yeah, no, but yes, becoming carbon neutral. What needs to be done to make book printing carbon neutral by 2050? Yeah, that's such a loaded question because, and I, this is one thing me and my co my colleagues were like, oh my gosh, we could write a novel about this. this is so you know, expansive of a topic and calculating carbon neutrality in and of itself is so tricky, right? Trying to maintain a deficit of zero. And so when we were really thinking about this, we try to think what is the thing that indie publishers and big publishers need to know the most? Um, so one of the things that was common was printing and print or what we call print plant and pulping is just, or printing plant is just not enough anymore. We can't just do, you know, oh, we cut down one tree and we, you know, donate or, 
make sure that the lumber mill plant in the tree and it's play doesn't really work anymore because there's, there's so many factors into that tree actually surviving to grow, but also the, like I talked about a little bit earlier, the biodiversity of that tree, right? And so there's a lot of equations into that. And then pulping actually, we need to use materials and from the outset, think about pulping books. If we're gonna continue this kind of practice of overselling books and then them getting returned, right? It's just a huge waste margin. And most of the time for pulping, we can't actually pulp a book because of the glue or the ink that's used. Could you give a really quick summary of what pulping is? Because I've noticed yes. a lot of people don't know what that is or that it even happens. Yeah. So pulping is basically taking an already printed and bound book and then unbinding it and then basically shredding it and then bleaching and chemically processing the paper basically so it can go back to like if we're talking about like the water cycle, but for books right, for making paper, going back into the pulp fiber that then gets pressed into making, in fact, finally a sheet of paper, right, that can be printed on. Um, so if it's used correctly, and if we, we start from the offset of thinking about pulping a book, right, if that becomes potential, then it feeds itself, right? It's the cycle that will continue to feed itself. Um, but again, most of the time, because we're overselling and then we're not thinking about what are we going to do with this excess inventory? Um, the pulp gets wasted, right? It actually can't be reused again. Um, and so and it's in energy efficiency wise, it's actually more efficient to make paper from pulp from already processed books or what we would call um, post-consumer waste paper. It's actually much more efficient and all across the board to use PCW paper than it is what we call version paper, which is paper that has never been recycled before and is straight from the lumber mill. That's amazing. I mean, that mm -hmm. sounds like it would be really good news, right? Yes. But, but you're saying that things like the glue and the ink um, kind of preclude it from being used in the way that it could be. Yes, it's the main deterrent. And then also just basically our infrastructure and we get there's this mentioned a little bit further in, a, in another way in the paper, but our infrastructure of our mills aren't set up to pulp anymore is part of the problem. A lot of our printing industry has migrated to China and to a lot of other countries and offseas. So especially in the pandemic, a lot of mills have closed or they've decided to switch straight to commercial industries, right? So like toilet paper, um, paper packaging, things like that. And so either their equipment is not high enough standards anymore to actually process books and to pulp them, or they're just not there anymore. So our printing industry has severely declined. And that's also leads to further on, like we talk about in the paper, distribution problems, because we're waiting for these papers to come for or these books to come months and months and months. And so it just it like you can kind of see it's like a flow chart, right? Where I'm, or at least I'm hinting at it, where it just one problem pings off another problem, another and another and another. Yeah, or pinball. Yes. <laughs> and then you go down into the shoot and you lose. Yeah. But yeah, so so there's those things. So uh, I guess I'm I'm going really long into your question, but basically if printers could, or publishers could choose to use PCW paper as much as humanly possible, though, because the demand is, you know, not as high, the price is kind of high right now, but 
slowly but surely, if we kind of just demand more and more and up that quantity a little bit more, the, the demand of the price will go down. So if printers and publishers can choose to use PCW paper as much as humanly possible, but also choosing or investing in their to their print mills because the printing plant again works fine and dandy, but you also need to have these other options of the infrastructure itself to support not cutting down the tree in the first place. And then that also leads into race runoffs and emissions. The paper industry is one of the top consumption of fossil fuels and CO2 emitters into the like into the whole entire atmosphere, not just from the loss of biodiversity and the loss of carbon emissions that get released from the ground when the trees are cut, but also just in the sheer production of it overall. Um, and so that leads into capital and labor, which is another way we talked about it, um, is thinking that publishers need to invest. They need to invest as much as they can by either supporting businesses that use PCW paper or work together to find these solutions with printers to make it happen. And that also includes paying people in the industry well enough so it's worth their time, right? That's like a big, it's a big, big, big thing. So um, there's lots of ways that we talk about the finishing like in our recommendations of where people can start to get to these overall goals, but those would be the overall like one, two, three, four, five, you know, to kind of get to being carbon neutral as much as possible. Because if we don't, we won't have paper to print on very soon. It's so interesting that you're saying that the ability to pulp has been reduced um, mm -hmm. from the past because so many of us think of progressing in a linear fashion to doing a better job. And to hear that we've actually regressed in that area is um, concerning, to say the yeah. least. I mean, there's a bigger conversation about American industrial, you know, facilities and just manufacturing in general to be had. And that I think paper mills are just a part of that equation. But most of the green printers we found that would be accessible to publishers are actually in Canada right now. Um, so, for instance, Patagonia, I can't remember the actual name of the mill, but the, the mill that Patagonia uses, they're actually right next to a dump. And so they take the gases from the, the, the gas emissions from the dump itself and use as part of their energy process. And then like, basically it's like, it's like a state of the art, like whiz, like, oh my gosh, can't we have every mill, you know, yeah. design like this? It's kind of one of those idealistic goals, but I definitely recommend checking it out in terms of like ideas, like what the future could look like for American printers. So let's move to the second research question. Uh, what does efficient and cost-effective delivery of print books to readers look like going forward? Yeah, you know, there are a lot of different ideas, I think, about this. And I think e-commerce, e-commerce, and just, you know, normal commerce are all in a vast state of flux with technology nowadays. One of the things that we've talked about in the program is doing pre-orders. So this kind of mimics the gaming industry, or even um, moves and books, but actually pre-ordering so you know what your numbers are ahead of the time, so you can print accurately, kind of makes sense, you yeah. know, in the in, in the long day. And I think that's also where, you know, where we see a lot of self-publishers going, right? Or people are authors who are self-publishing or indie publishers where they're doing Patreons or they're doing GoFundMes, right? And so they can get a more accurate call for their numbers. Um, another thing would be local and discounted delivery. So I think we've talked about in general, 
and then I mean the we as in society from Amazon, right? How looking at local is the way to kind of go. And so we can kind of think about that in that sense too, about where, how can we encourage local consumption of books um, that will overall reduce wait time, but also reduce emissions and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then directly we, from the publisher. Yes, dying directly from the publisher, or even just knowing that your bookstore is going to, your local bookstore is going to have that book, right? And you can go and pick up that book there versus necessarily having it shipped off from who knows where, what warehouse in Amazon, right? That it could actually be like five states away. Corinne has strong feelings about pre-orders. I do. Yes. I wish more authors would get excited about them and uh, market them to their, you know, their readers Mm -hmm. and everything. And yeah, it's an uphill battle. I mean, I work in publicity and I've worked in marketing Mm -hmm. in the past and it's always just like, push those pre-orders. Come on guys. You know, so, but I'm always banging the drum for that. So yeah. Yes. And then there's also trade organizations like IPBA or, you know, your local regional one, whether it's um, MIBA or PNBA and stuff like that. That's a great way to, to kind of like get your book out there and to get really people tapped into your book, especially if you're struggling for sales. Um, And then this kind of taps into a larger narrative of book publishing in, in general, but incorporating an actual point of sale system. So many publishers actually just will have about them pages and their books and how to contact them, but they won't have selling information or you can't buy the book right there, right? And so that kind of defeats the purpose of having an, an online website. It's not only, it's, it, it kind of just destroys the sale funnel of where, you need to let the consumer know who you are and then they need to buy the book, right? And if there's no option for them to buy the book right then and there, you know, you kind of just destroy your own attention that you bring to yourself. Yeah, or they have the friction of having to go to another website for it at the bottom of the page. It's like, link to buy it here. It's like, oh no, which one do I choose? Do I do like books a million? Do I do Amazon? Like, what is the moral choice? I'm bored. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also to losing the button to Amazon too. So if people really want to make their sales, right. It's better to them to be like, Hey, here's our book right here. You can buy it. Right. Than losing it to a third party seller mm-hmm. on Amazon. If they have to go find the book, which happens so often. And then not to mention too, just, I think too, that whole premise of um, I think Amazon will surcharge uh, you if you don't have enough inventory with them yes. for people to pull the order. So you also, not only do you lose the sale, but then you also can sometimes get charged money as well. So yeah, it just makes sense to have your actual websites be updated and for them to be supportive of a point of sale system. And if the author's doing pre-orders, they can send you to that website instead yeah. of Amazon. Ah. Mm-hmm. And we also talked about this a little bit later in the paper too, but there's also the potential of bundling eBooks, you know, into the sale overall price of the print book itself. Because we've seen in other research that people who really love an eBook will buy the print book and people who really love the print book will buy the eBook because they want to be able to read it anywhere. So they're not, I mean, I think we think, I think we've all thought, especially like in 08 and everything, we're like, oh my gosh, the print, the ebook will take over print books and they'll mm-hmm. live print books. You know, I think we, I think we've learned that that's not the case. It's time to not freak out anymore. 
and that they are not diametrically opposed. They're actually very symbiotic if you're publishing and if you're marketing them right. Mm -hmm. And in face of the supply chain issues, it would be a really great way for not have angry customers who are waiting for a book for forever and a billion years. Yeah, because you can kind of sate that hunger until you get the format that you really want. Mm-hmm. Well, that, but also when it does finally come in the room, they're like, oh, I'm excited. It's a book, right? Yes. Instead of being like, oh my gosh, it's taking forever. They finally got me my book, right? right. Yeah. So it's two widely different reactions potentially that one will definitely lead to probably more sales in the future while the other one, maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. And then that'll make it easier to figure out how many to print. Exactly. <laughs> Ideas. The, the, the logic, the logic keeps feeding back into itself. It's amazing how that works. We hate logic here. <laughs> um, so in addition to some of the things you've already said, uh, what chinks in the industry's armor were most exposed due to the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I already kind of said it, but yeah. we just don't have the infrastructure for printing right anymore like we used to um i mean again patagonia i'll just use them as an example they make beautiful books like if you ever go look at their their catalog and everything they make beautiful color and black and white books and they have no problems with their books right but they use completely 100 percent pcw paper right and it's all from here and so that's the problem is that we are relying so much right now on Asia to print high grade resolution colorful pictures. And there's nothing with, I'm not trying to be like, we can't export our business. I'm not trying to like- Oh no, you you don't sound like that at all. Yeah, Yeah. you weren't getting that vibe. No, no, no. it's just like, I'm I'm trying not to like, that's not the vibe that we're trying to really, or message we're trying to convey. But there is the very logistical equation of, okay, it has to cross an ocean to get here because books are too heavy to get on a plane, right? Yep, yep. So, They've got a lot to deal with over there, especially if these are generalized plants, right? So right. they're not gonna necessarily prioritize, you know, one specific industry's needs. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the pulp problem, right? I mean, we have a pulp problem ourselves and Asia does as well because of the same practices that we're talking about early in the carbon neutrality, right? Um, and so, they just, so not only do we not have enough printers and they don't have enough technology, we literally just don't have the material to print, right? right? And then there was the shipping issues, which, you know, it's, it's a very complicated, it's like five different plates at the same time, right? Um, where we have the labor issue, right? So you have people who are sick who can't be there. And then we have the need for a lot of medical supplies to be prioritized in terms of shipping, right? And like emergency or essential materials. So then you've got this backlog, right? And then we have the ports that are congested because of the lack of labor, right? And so then somewhere in between and in there, the labor started coming back and we started getting, um, you know, non-essential items also shipped as well. But then there was this huge backlog waiting to be shipped and it just created this bottleneck situation where there was not enough hands or time or money you know and in terms of just in general for 
things to really get prioritized. And then there was the whole Suez Canal issue, which is another, you know, that's a, you know, that's like a whole nother, that's a whole nother basket. But, you know, when we have those issues, right, we had ships that were just waiting in ports, Wow. you know, around, not just like in the U.S., but around the world Mm -hmm. that, you know, and so then we had ships that were missing. We're like, where's, you know, ship, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, it's in Taiwan (sighs) when it needs to be in like uh, Puerto Rico, right? So you have these ships that are just like kind of MIA. And so you can't really actually plan a distribution route if you don't have the vehicles, right? Or the modalities to get these 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 products across. And then like I kind of mentioned the labor, right? Um, one of our coworkers was like, you know, I'll, I'll read this correctly. For instance, companies like Walmart can afford to pay employees 19.50 an hour with full benefits. And I can tell you as a graduate right now, I have seen plenty of publishing jobs that are like $15 an hour, $13 an hour, $17 an hour, you know, and I'm not trying again to say Walmart sucks or anything like that. Don't come at me, Walmart. That's not what I'm trying to say. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Come at us, Walmart. Yeah. We take full responsibility. (laughs) Rachel does not. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say that. (laughs) <laughs> but at the same time, you know, for a lot of people who are entering an industry where it's highly skilled labor, if that's the expectation of we, there's just, there's just a very misdemand being met of, okay, you need to have two or three years of experience, but we won't let you in. But then when you get the two to three years experience, we're going to pay you like you have none before right? and stuff like that. And then, then also there's the whole mid-career burnout that's happening systemically throughout the publishing industry because of the lack of pay. Mm -hmm. So that's just, you know, on the worker office side, let alone the distribution side. So overall, everyone's not happy about being paid less. And so they just don't stay. Um, So there's no one really to man the helm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So there are some solutions in talking about this. There's the transparency of wages, the transparency with customers, customers prefer be like, hey, we can't give you your book because it's stuck on a boat somewhere and we don't know where it is, right? I, there's a certain point I think we've learned, especially in the pandemic, that that ridic- like even if it's a ridiculous situation, we all kind of just like, okay, that makes sense. We'll, we'll, we'll be okay, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's, we'll just deal with it. So there's that aspect. And then print on demand, um, which... I think, you know, a long time we've, a lot of publishing, traditional publishing has kind of looked snobbishly on print on demand, Mm -hmm. being like, it's not as good paper. It's not as good everything. Well, that's not necessarily, maybe 10, 15 years ago, that Mm might've been the case, but that's not the case anymore. In some ways, print on demand books or facilities are actually more technologically advanced than some of the other mills that are happening right now. Um, and at least they like kind of specialize on doing books, which mm-hmm. says a lot too about their infrastructure. Um, but especially if you're doing a black and white book, it really shouldn't matter that much. Mm-hmm. And there's so many things with print on demand now that it's not just like, oh, I can only print a book this size, blah, blah, blah. It's so customizable at this stage in the game that it's really a good way that you can kind of relook at 
printing in the US and then you have less supply chain issues because you're not literally waiting for your shipment to come across a sea, right? right? Or a continent. But that's the thing too, is that like one of the things we found out circling back a little bit is that one of the reasons why printers will say, oh, we don't do PCW paper is because they don't have a paper broker that will offer it to them. So you can just completely cheat the system, be like, hey, here's my paper. You buy the paper and you supply it to them. They print on that paper. So there's no, there's not really, cause like that's, we, we kind of see this as like lobbyists in general, right? Where like, you know, there's the, there's the, there's the publisher, there's the print mill and then or the printer, sorry. And then there's the paper broker and then there's the mill itself. The paper broker here helps trickle down the rest of the prices for the rest of the chain, right? And they're the ones that talk in this little mill. And so it makes sense in a lot of ways that they're like, yeah, we just want you to print on virgin paper. Yeah. Or we're going to make PCW paper as high as possible, right? Mm. But that's not, you know, you can, you can go to a paper broker. And that's, I think, what Patagonia started out doing, actually. If I remember correctly, I could be wrong. But, um, but they were like, yeah, we want to do PCW paper. We've bought the paper here. Here you go. The human urge to just take whatever is in front of you and whatever is the easiest choice is so strong. Mm-hmm. It is. And it's not like technology doesn't help us resist that urge, you know? Yeah, no, we're, we're all impulse driven yep. mm-hmm. more than ever before. And, you know, I'm no exception, of course. Yeah. But then the last bit I'll say about the print on demand that we recommended too is adding a third shift to printing schedules um, and having the process become more automated. So in terms of pre-orders, right, you have that first initial batch of, you know, these are confirmed sales, right? And then thinking about after that, okay, here's how well the book is doing from our original estimate, right? Here's a third print run for those extra books, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that we think we're going to sell, but we're not going to overshoot what we can base off of these pre-order numbers. So adding a third shift too will help stagger things. So you're not relying on one huge entire shipment of books. So how can the book industry decrease the returns rate for books sold into trade channels from an average of 30% to an average of 15% or less? We have to work with book publish book stores to do this because obviously they're our seller, our main seller of books. And so we can't just like, you know, yank the carpet out from underneath them. I'll just preface with that. Um, but part of it is we're going to have to start being serious about not taking returns is the short story, right? It's both not taking returns and this is the contract we're going into and in a combination of those, you know, making more accurate or reduced print runs. Because the idea of what we've been doing of where we're going to oversell by 30% and then receive, you know, that those books back, not only does it contribute, obviously, the carbon printing that we've talked about, the carbon neutrality that we talked about, but it's outdated. It's from World War II. Like that business model in of itself. And obviously, I mean, you could talk to any economist or business analyst, right? And they will tell you that, like, obviously, business in itself has changed drastically let alone, you know, in the next, next 10 years, let alone 20 years, 30 years, right? So um, there were a couple of things. So increase the discount rate and refuse returns. Um, penalize wholesalers with high returns. Mm. Um, 
reduce print runs in general, uh, control the release of new titles, especially in slow moving segments. And we've kind of talked about two, I think in one part of the paper where if booksellers are really hesitant about a new author and how well that book will do, right? We can kind of change those rates a little bit. But if it's like, for instance, if it's Stephen King novel, we know it's gonna do well. We know it's gonna sell pretty well, decently, right? Then that's where we're implementing those things of like, we refuse return or it's severely penalized. Um, but then we go into the end or minimize the mid list, right? The idea of that. And then convince booksellers not to overorder and avoid overselling the potential of a book, which is another big aspect where I think booksellers sometimes don't get, they're not as in touch with their readers as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they oversell the potential of a book or even, um, or even that's also on the fault of the publisher too, or the, like the marketing of the publicity team, or even the author where they're thinking, oh, this book is going to be a blockbuster and then, you know, it flops. And acquisitions. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, a, it's, it's, it's on both sides of the equation. But um, one thing that we didn't get to talk about in the article is one thing we can learn about is actually from the comics industry. The comic industry doesn't do returns. They just don't. And they haven't for pretty much the majority of printing comics, right? So that is one thing that if we're talking about books and we already have a model for it, comics already does this where they just don't do returns. And so comic book sellers are very selective in how much they'll order and what they will order. No, that's, that's fascinating. I actually didn't know that about comics. I have a lot to learn in that department, but that seems like a, a much more realistic way to approach things than just, just print a whole bunch of them and then we'll sell them. And if they don't work, we'll rip them into tiny pieces and who knows where it goes. But yeah, no. So it's, we're going to have to work with, with booksellers and some of them will definitely bulk, I think at this in general. Um, it's not going to be, uh, an easy overnight kind of thing, but it's kind of the future of what we need to do. If one, we want to keep printing on books, right. That are not getting pulped properly. Right. Right. So we're, we're running on a finite amount of gas, so to speak, for just getting our books across in general, um, that aren't being recycled properly. But then in addition to, it's just not a sustainable business practice. No. Um, and we need to update with the times of not only having from that direct point of sale, but we're thinking about what does it look like in the bookseller, right? Mm-hmm. In that third party market. And that is, you know, again, we're thinking about rewriting those contracts. Well, and it also seems like that if, if we create sustainability as a shared goal that doesn't make publishers and booksellers at odds with one another. If you're looking Mm -hmm. at profits and if you're looking at this as a competition as we tend to do, then I can see why there would be more friction between the booksellers and the publishers. But if that contract is like, we're trying to accomplish this goal of not wasting things, then that's something you can do together and do as a collaborative project. Yeah, well, then there's also just, I think, too, it's, again, like I prefaced with this part, we don't need to pull the rug, 
right? It right. does not need to be this really sudden, like, we're going to do this and then everyone riots, right? Because it just, it creates misunderstanding and it creates like this sense of like rejection, right? And it creates this sense of alienation of like, we won't sell books anymore if, you know, you're going to return them, right? It just, it creates a standoffishness that's not necessary. It's adversarial, like we see with publishers in Amazon, for instance, Mm -hmm. there's always this feeling of like, they want to put us out of business. And I can see how booksellers might have that kind of knee-jerk reaction if publishers start making uh, rules that seem threatening to them. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, and like we talked about, I think in the paper, we can, you can it can be a gradual thing where eventually over time, like it's maybe the first thing in a new seller contract is like, you know, we will charge two cents, five cents, 10 cents per book that's returned back to us. Enough where there is a, ooh, that's not going to feel great, right? That it makes people think twice, but not like, oh, this will devastate them if they return this many books and they've had a bad season, right? right? You know, so not something like that, but maybe that's the first thing that they do. Or if it is a new author that's not really got a good, great track record, we can talk about you're allowed to return 50% of the stock that you buy, right? Could be another one. Um, and if you do return more than that, then that's where the fees would come in, right? So it doesn't have to be where we're kind of dumping everything in the booksellers' hands where they take all the risk. Currently, the I would say the publishers have been taking most of the risk for this venture for a very, very long time. And it's just, it doesn't do anyone actually really any good favors, both for the labor for what we as publishers can afford to pay our employees, which would then produce better books if we paid them better. Um, but then also we would have, again, less of these distribution and solution problems because you have more consistent labor and people. And then you get to a really deliverable product. And then that last step of working with the seller of the product to make sure that it's not being wasted, it's going to a good place in terms of everyone is happy with the deal. This actually makes me happy. I don't know. I I love hearing people's ideas about how to make things better. And I know that everything is a bit doomy right now, but this, this is optimistic. Um, Yeah. And that's, that's what we wanted to do. Like, I mean, it, I will admit with carbon neutrality being the first of the four in the paper, you know, it's kind of like, then there's also the American printing system. I think there are times when you read that paper and you're like, oh my gosh. Well, there's, <laughs> there, there is that, but. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of times where you're like, oh my gosh, this is such a big problem. I'm such a tiny little person. Yeah. You know? And I think that's, that's common, especially with just the world is in general. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's, this conversation can really truly start anywhere. Like for instance, and maybe Uligan is a little unique in this, but after Black Lives Matter really kind of had its very huge uptick during the pandemic, especially in the Portland area, yeah. um, you know, we as a press were like, okay, we really need to sit down and make this part of our core values of where we think about race and diversity. And so we reread, we wrote, re, sorry, ugh, we rewrote our mission statement. We thought about it all together. And then we also, I mean, our acquisitions team is doing fantastic, but Kelly, um, 
Amanda and Kelly, who were the acquisition managers this last year, we have, I think, at least one biopoc, either subject or author, who's publishing every quarter for the next Good. couple of years, Good. right? Yeah. And in an area that the Pacific Northwest, which most people think is very whitewashed, um, which they're not necessarily completely wrong in terms of like the general overall demographics, but there is race and diversity here and it should be represented. So, you know, that's one example of where we made a cultural shift that we're going to prioritize this. And now it's reflecting in our business. And so the same thing can happen too when we talk about printing and sustainability and distribution. We can look at it and like, okay, this is what we're going to do. How do we get to these steps? And it's just a slow but sure trek. It's not something, I mean, it's the whole realm was not built in a night overnight kind of thing, but it's a thing where there needs to be a, cons- a consistent and conscious effort by everyone, not just higher ups and not just by people who are lower in the chain of command. And it is something, especially you, you focus mostly on small and medium publishers for mm-hmm. this and yes. uh Ooligan is a small publisher. You made those, uh, you made those progressions on a smaller scale, but mm-hmm. if there are several different businesses making changes on small scales in this way, then, you know, momentum, et cetera. Oh yeah. No, I mean, for sure. Like if, again, like I kind of mentioned this already about PCW paper, but it's the cost is usually considered too high right now for, you know, indie or small publishers. And Honestly, you can start with 10% PCW paper. It doesn't have to be 100%. You can start with 10, you can start with 20. And to be frank too, books have been undersold for a long time. Um, we, I mean, Ooligan is rising their prices on books right now. Um, we're, and that's not just us being like, oh, we need to, you know, be com- we need to just be above the price. No, that's the competitive price. Everyone's raising their prices right now. And so hopefully in the bottom line, when we think about these issues overall, right, we're thinking about the holistic process. And then if we need to raise our book one more dollar, two more dollars to make the ends meet, then that's kind of what we might need to do. Do what you got to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, sh- the shift in priorities. That's what I would say. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, and I know that for the indie and small publishers, business owners who are listening to this, they might be like, well, that one cent really makes a huge difference for me. I can't ask to do more. Um, you know, I would encourage them to think about where could they flex? Maybe it's not their dollar right now, but could they think about printing less paper? Could they, for instance, do galleys, non-printed galleys? Could they do only ebook galleys through like Edelweiss or something like that. That's one way Patagonia, for instance, has, has carved their, or sorry, carved, curbed their carbon emissions and carbon neutrality is that they don't do any printed documents anymore, almost ever with their books. It's almost all digital and everything that they do use with those books, they get reused in some way or form, right? So you can work with your existing assets in itself to get to these solutions. It's just a question of the priority of what you decide to do. Rachel, can you tell us where people can find you online, please? Yes, Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. 
Um, and I believe I sent you my website as well, but um, it's uh, Rachel, racheldonkubias.com. Um, and that should be available uh, wherever I think you guys will be posting this information. Yeah, of, this like, will be on our website yeah. and um, it's linked through all of our social media. Yeah, so you can definitely click on the links via social media and look over my stuff in general. There is a lot that is there and there's also a lot that I still have in the works too. So feel free to just hit me with a message and I'll get back to you. Fantastic. Um, you can find us on hybridpubscout.com and SoundCloud or the listening app of your choice, Twitter at hybridpubscout, Instagram at hybridpubscoutpod. Um, we're on Facebook, but I am kind of neglecting Facebook because it sucks. Yes. Thank you, Rachel. This has been amazing. Yeah, no problem. And thanks for giving a rip about books.